Father, we thank you that you are in absolute control of everything. There are times when it seems to us that things are out of control. There are times when it seems to us that events and circumstances uh, in, our, in our nation with this whole issue of the very foundations of our nation and our belief system, at least what we originally believed, are being shaken to the core. And, and we, we shake our heads in amazement as we attempt to, 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 to hold on and to find something to steady us. And uh, what that is is you, and what it is is your word. Uh, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we hold on to you, and we hold on to your truth. And as we are concerned, we are even more focused that in our own lives, we take the truth that we believe and we apply it and live it out in our lives and in our marriages. So with marriage under attack, it's very, very important that we protect our marriages and that we be doubly committed to the whole concept and institution of marriage that you have invented and that you have ordained and that belongs to you. We, we are concerned, Lord. We, we are concerned with the downward spiral. We're concerned with the, with the slide. We are concerned uh, over the fact that there is indeed two Americas and two cultures, and there is the red and there is the blue on the electoral map. But you are the one who is in charge, and you are the one who is in control. And there will be an election later this year, and you have already determined who you will put into that office. That is what you do. And not only is it true in our nation, but it's true in every nation. Uh, you are in absolute control. You are in charge. Uh, some of us today, Lord, we, we've encountered events that have threatened to, to overwhelm us. And uh, some of us have been perhaps shocked and even surprised. And, and we're still catching our breath from news that we received today about a family member, about a uh, career situation, about a, a, a deal that we thought was going to happen that isn't going to happen. Thank you that you are sovereign over those circumstances. Thank you that you are in complete charge. Thank you, Lord, that these things that happen to us, that shock us and surprise us, that weren't in our daytimer and weren't in our Palm Pilot, Thank you that those things are all under your control. The good things that have happened, we thank you for. Those are under your control. The negative things that have happened, we thank you because they are under your control. And you will actually bring good to our lives out of those negative things. So much, Lord, of what we get confused about is all traced to the fact that we have wrong ideas about you. We, uh, we have made you too much like us. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are. Help our minds to be expanded by the truth of your greatness and your majesty. Tonight, give us what we need. Uh, every day, we need something new from you. Every day, we need new manna. Every day, we need new sustenance. We can't live on what you gave us last week or last year. We're grateful for that more than we can express, but we can't live off that. 
That's why your mercies are new every morning. And we count on that. As you gave Israel manna in the wilderness, you give us spiritual manna and emotional manna and physical manna every day to get through that particular day. Teach us tonight. Instruct us. You know what we need. You know where we're hurting. You know where we are deficient in our thinking. Fix us. Repair us. Change our oil. Whatever you need to do, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was seven years old, my dad and I took a tour of the USS Shangri-La, which at that time was one of the largest aircraft carriers in the world. When you're seven years old and you get on an aircraft carrier, I'll tell you this, I had never seen, I had never seen, I had never imagined a ship that big. I, I was mesmerized. I was stunned. I was astonished by the magnitude of that great ship. Uh, that, that's when I was seven. When I was 12, uh, I went to a basketball game at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And I positioned myself and stationed myself so that at halftime, when the players came off the court, I was able to stand next to and walk alongside of Wilt Chamberlain. I had never seen a man that big. Seven foot two, unbelievably uh, muscular. I was 12 years old. I was, what, maybe 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, five, uh, I barely could see his waist. I'd never seen a man that big. Um, when I was 17, I had a job parking cars at the San Francisco airport. And I remember pulling my car around the corner of the south terminal and as I came around that bend I stared at for the first time in my life a 747 and it was right next to the parking lot I wasn't 50 feet away from that 747 I had never in my life seen anything that big and I had the same thought that you had when you saw one of those. How in the world is that sucker going to get off the ground? But they get off the ground. I'd never seen a plane that big. When I was 45, I was visiting a friend in Virginia. And we were having dinner at his house. And after dinner, he said, hey, you want to take a ride? And I said, sure. Uh, he pulls out of his garage a brand-new Hummer. Not a Hummer H2, a Hummer. He said, you want to drive it? I said, what is it? <laughs> so I got in this guy's Hummer. I'd never been in a truck, whatever the heck that thing is, that big. I, I, the thing I remember about it is I could stretch my arm out and not touch the seat. I couldn't reach it. If I, if I bent, if I, I still couldn't reach it. I'd never been in a vehicle that big. When I was uh, 51, uh, two months and four days before September 11th, 
I was with my wife and we were standing on top of the South Tower of the World Trade Center. I'd never been in a building that big before. I'd never been up that high before. And it was real fresh in my mind two months later when those towers came down. There are some big things that we have encountered. There are some things that we um, uh, see, that we uh, touch, that we get to the top of, and we are mesmerized uh, by the power and by the size and by the strength, uh, by the immensity. Uh, we are just astonished. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was astonished when he was on a safari in Africa and a bull elephant charged him. He was astonished. But he had the presence of mind to take that rifle and drill that behemoth between the eyes and it dropped dead about 40 yards away from him. He'd never seen an animal that big. Uh, there are some huge things in the world. There are some big things in the world. But if you'll turn to Isaiah 40, you'll see that God invites us to look at him. He invites us to get to know him. He invites us to take a look at him. Uh, quite frankly, God invites us to compare him. Uh, sometimes we comparison shop. If you're going to buy a car, you shop around. You check out a few different dealerships. Maybe if you're high-tech, uh, you get on the Internet and uh, you, you compare uh, what you can do at this dealership as opposed to another dealership. God invites us to compare him to those things which we think are great. And when we do that, we immediately find out what we think is great is not so great. Not when compared to him. Um, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? As we're reading this, guys, as we're reading this, uh, you've walked in here, some of you, with pressures and stresses and worries and concerns and things that are really pressing in on your life and you're not quite sure how they're going to get resolved or how they're going to work out. Uh, for some of you, it's to such a degree you might even have trouble tonight sleeping because it's just a time of acute difficulty and stress. I would invite you as we read this description, uh, compare your stress and difficulty and seemingly insurmountable circumstances to what we're reading. And calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? Who has ever done that? No, we have tried, but it's foolishness. No one has ever counseled the Lord. No one has ever instructed him. Verse 14, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, 
The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. The way you would flick dust, a piece of lint off a sports coat, is what God does with the great islands of the world. He just flicks them and they come into existence. Or they go out of existence. Sixteen, even Lebanon. Remember the cedars of Lebanon, the great forest of Lebanon, the, the great uh, cedars that were shipped down to Solomon to, to build the temple. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations, all the nations, all of them, United States, Red China, Common Market, all the United Nations, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded, I love this, this is just great stuff. Especially if you listen to CNN at all today at any point. Or any, uh, any news channel or KR, anything. If you listen to anything today, you'll be encouraged by verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Well, that just, I like that. For some reason, it encourages me. Um, but I don't know if you heard this today, but with all the terrorist activity, the, ter the uh, terrorism alert was raised in France from run to hide. Verse 18, uh, and, the, and the only other higher stage is surrender. <laughs> That's not in the text, you understand. That was just a little knife in the back. Verse 18, this is good stuff. To, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman cast it. A goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering, uh, for a gold idol, to buy one or purchase one, as they did, uh, selects a tree that doesn't rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. You want an idol that is even on the bottom. Not like that chair in your dining room that you, you got to slip a little piece of cardboard under to even it. If you're going to have an idol that you're going to pray to, you don't want it to totter. It's a little, un, it, it rocks your faith when you pray to the idol if, if you just can't quite get it level. Verse 20, are, are people not just stupid? Are not cultures stupid that we would do such a thing? You say, well, I'm glad we don't worship idols. No, but your front end can get out of alignment on your idol. Right? See, we, we don't bow before idols like they did in the Old Testament. We just drive them. And we just pursue them. Now, if you, you understand what I'm saying. What you drive is not necessarily your idol, but it can be. You've seen that, and I've seen it. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? 
It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. This is really good stuff, I think, because it gives perspective. The people we think are powerful and the people that we think are important and the people that have money on their side and power and position and network, they're not powerful at all. Uh, Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then would you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Boy, that's great stuff. To whom then will you liken me? He he asks us, he invites us, he challenges us to compare whatever it is that we think is powerful. Whatever it is that we think is great, whatever it is that we think is majestic and strong and secure, he invites us to compare those things to him. And and they're they're not lent on the coat. Um, That gives us perspective. Uh, We're we're kicking off a study here for the next uh, eight weeks. And what we're going to study is uh, very simply God. We're going to get to know him. We're going to find out what he's like. When you die, what are you planning on doing? Have you given much thought to this? Uh, It's uh, Because you are going to be doing something. Uh, John 3.16, very familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Sometimes it's referred to in the Bible as eternal life. Flip over to John 17, if you would, please. In John chapter 17, we are told what we are going to be doing with this eternal life. We are told what we are going to be doing after we die. Uh, It's uh, it's laid out for us. Quite frankly, it it couldn't be um, it, it couldn't be stated um, any more clearly than it is. Let's pick up verse one. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, "Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life." This is eternal life. Now, here's an interesting definition. See, we think eternal life is we're going to live forever, and that is eternal life. 
but there's another facet, and there's a reason we're going to live forever. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What we are going to do for eternity, and by the way, you guys know how long eternity is? It's a real long time. Yeah. Uh, there's the, and see, so we, we can't digest that. We can't uh, assimilate that. Because, we, um, because we're human and we're small and we're limited. We, we, we uh, night before last, went and got uh, a golden retriever puppy. And we already have a retriever. And we had another one who we had to put to sleep about a year and a half ago. So uh, we just needed to get another pup. And uh, so we, we picked this little pup up, and she's 12 weeks old. And we got her home tonight, Wednesday. We got her home Monday night, and it was dark. And so we get her in a little, you know, in that little, uh, what do you call that thing? Crate. I want to call it a cage, but I want to be politically correct. <laughs> Crates sound better than cages. Um, we put her in a little crate, and she's kind of whelping and whining and all. Well, the next day, she comes outside, she, and, uh, you know, we open the sliding door, and we've got our other retriever, Sadie, and Sadie goes outside, and then she goes out, and I started just walking, and I walked just a little bit, and then I started watching her, and she'd walk, and she was sniffing, and she's, see, what she was doing was checking out the world. That's what she was doing. And she would only go maybe uh, 40 or 50 feet from the patio in either direction. And then throughout the day, she'd start venturing out a little bit more. And uh, by 4 o'clock, I took a walk down by the barn, which is about 200 yards away. And Sadie went with me, and she went with us. And she's just, she, see, she was checking it all out. She was uh, exploring and finding out uh, about this world that... Uh, that, that's, that's what she was doing. Um, uh, she didn't exist a year ago. Uh, but now she does. Um, when was it that you didn't exist? How many years ago was that? Are you 50? Ah, then 51 years ago you didn't exist, but you exist now, and you'll exist forever. When, when Christ draws us to himself and reveals himself to us and gives us eternal life, we start a process that will take forever, that will take eternity. Um, and what will we do? We will get to know him because it will take eternity. See, eternity is forever. Eternity has no end. What that means is uh, there is no end to the riches and to the depth of who God is. Eternal life is getting to know God. When I was a freshman, my freshman year of seminary, G.I. Packer came out with a book called Knowing God. It's a book that talks about the character of God. Over the next 10, 12 years, I read that book 18 times. Uh, because every time I'd read it, I'd find something else, a nuance about God that I had missed that, that book had such uh, meat, and it had such spinach, and, and it had such antioxidants in it. 
that, that, I, that I really needed to read it, and I needed to read it closely, and I needed to chew on it. Uh, uh, what you believe about God and what I believe about God is the most important thing about us. Some of the struggles that we have in life when we encounter various situations and difficulties and hardships, so much of our struggle, uh, I don't want to minimize what it is we go through. Sometimes things happen and we question and we're unsure and we wonder about God. The more you get to know God, the less you will struggle about God. But we must say this, God is very, very different from us. J.B. Phillips wrote a book years and years ago with a great title, Your God is Too Small. Now that's true for every one of us in this room. Our, our God is too small. Martin Luther had an ongoing debate with uh, a guy by the name of Erasmus. And they would write letters back and forth to each other about these great principles of Scripture that they were debating and at one point, Luther, um, in the middle of a letter to Erasmus, just simply said, uh, Erasmus, your God is too human. That pretty much summed up the whole issue. Erasmus had a, Erasmus had a God that was very, very, very much like him. God is not like you, and God is not like me. Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Do you ever get upset at God because he hasn't done it your way? Have you ever had a time in your life where you have questioned God and wondered what the heck he's doing? You ever had a situation in your life where you've wondered where he is? Have you ever had a situation in your life where you've wondered why he isn't answering your prayer, why he isn't coming to your aid, why he isn't coming to your assistance, why this issue won't go away, why it keeps coming and coming and coming again? why you can't get a grip on it, why you can't get relief from it. You ever, you ever wondered about that? You say, God, what the heck are you doing? Because you see, in your mind, the way to take care of it is to fix it. The way to take it. See, you've got a solution that you know would take care of the problem. In, in other words, you have a way that you know would work. But you know... It says that there is a way that seems right to a man. It's not the right way because it's your way. My ways are not your ways. We get frustrated with God, but he tells us up front. He levels with us. God doesn't con us. God doesn't play. He tells us up front, hey, listen, you got to understand something about me. My ways are not your ways. I'm not going to do it your way. My thoughts are not your thoughts. See, God has things that he's doing. God has things that he's working. God has things that he is moving around and shaping and putting together that we know absolutely nothing about. We're like that little tiny golden retriever at our house that's sniffing around about five or six acres and, and in a week or so will be pretty comfortable and, and think that she's pretty much got a grip on her environment. She didn't have a clue. The guys at MIT don't have a clue. They think they do. They've got just a trace of what's out there about God. 
They've got just a trace of what's true about the creation that he has built and he has formed and the laws he's put into place. Uh, To whom then will you liken me, God says. Uh, Eternal life is getting to know God. God has a personality. Have you guys ever uh, gone through, uh, uh, maybe when you got married, you did premarital counseling or uh, for a job interview, they gave you a series of tests and, and uh, one of the tests was a, was a personality test. Have you ever done anything like that? I took, one of the, I took a personality test one time and flunked it. <laughs> it was a little devastating, quite frankly. Said, well, you have no personality. It was a little rough on me, but when, when you do those personality tests, and they always say, well, this, this really isn't a test. Well, of course it is. I mean, you know, it's when you can't pass or fail. Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find out what you're like, and they're trying to find out what your characteristics are. Uh, some people are real steady. Some people are up and they're down, up and down. The up and down people marry people who are real steady. And it often gets real interesting. Uh, Some people spend money. Some people don't spend money. Some people are gregarious and outgoing. Some people are introverts. They don't like to be around people. You're wired a certain way. You're hardwired a certain way by God when he created you and created me in our mother's womb. He, He put us together, hardware and software. He put us together. Uh, when you take these different profiles or these different personality tests, they, and if you've done this, I remember one time, when I entered the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary, we took 11 of those things. And then we sat down with the guy who was head of counseling, and he went over everything with us. And, and it was somewhat startling to me, the things that he shared, how accurate they were. Just absolutely astonishing. Um, he... he uh, he was able through those tests to discern uh, my personality and my strengths and my weaknesses. God has no weaknesses. God only has strengths. But God has attributes. Uh, in the book Knowing God, J.I. Packer, in each chapter, he'll take an attribute of God. Uh, that's what we're going to do here. There, there is nothing in my mind... Uh, Uh, greater than studying uh, the attributes of God. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of the Christian church, got up in his pulpit, oh, about 160 years ago in London, and here is what he said on a Sunday morning. You guys with me? I want you to listen carefully to this, if you would, please. He said, it has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast, 
that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride, our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content, and we go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, um, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. But rather he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, we say, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to more humble your mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject of God humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in his glorious trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. He's got one more paragraph. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. There is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go and plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort our souls, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing on the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. That was his introduction to his message. He was 20 years old. He knew God. He had a grandfather who knew God. He spent a lot of time at his grandfather's home. He spent a lot of time in his grandfather's library uh, reading books about this God that had called him. Um, you know when you start off a new study and you're bringing a study to a close, uh, sometimes people have ideas for studies. I think, um, I think they did a, uh, what do you, I, I don't want to say a poll because that's what Clinton would do. Um, what do you call that? Survey. There you go. That's better. Um, they, they did a survey. And, and, and with some of you guys, and just asking some different questions, and like, what is it you guys would, what are some subjects that would interest you to study? And uh, as I recall, one of the top ones was family. And um, then there were some others about trials. And our, the reason I want to do this study 
on the character of God is, is that it's root core stuff. You see, a lot of times an issue in a family that's going on, and we want to get that fixed and we want to get it resolved. That's where we're hurting. That's what's bothering us. That's, that's the toothache that won't go away. So we want that symptom treated. But you see, a good doctor, a good dentist doesn't just, just treat the symptom he's looking for. He's diagnosing. He wants to know what the root, he wants to know what the core is. Whatever it is that you're dealing with in your life, uh, it's symptomatic, and your response to it and your dealing with that issue all comes down to what it is that you believe to be true about God. Um, so that's why we're going to do this. There, there, there's nothing more significant than what I believe about God. It, it is possible to be raised in church. It's possible to be raised in an evangelical church and, uh, and quite frankly have an imbalance on what you've been taught about God. The evangelical church in America has become very human. Our God has become human. Uh, we edit our Bibles we cut and paste and we delete. And there are some passages we stay away from because they uh, make us uncomfortable and they raise issues and they put us in tension and they bring up issues that we can't resolve. And so as a result, we tend to stay away from them. Instead of, instead of dealing with issues about God, as, as Spurgeon said, that will expand your mind, we tend to stay away from them. And as a result... We don't grow, and we don't develop. And when hardship comes into our life, one of the most amazing things to me about Job, he lost everything in a matter of minutes. You know what happened to him in Job 1. He's wiped out, loses his business, his farm, his slaves, loses his children. He is absolutely ruined, tears his clothes. And Job says, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not what he said. That is what most evangelicals would say. We would say, the Lord gives and Satan took away. Because that's our theology. Job had a much bigger grasp on who God uh, is than we do. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He knew... He knew that God was in absolute control. He knew that God was there. He knew that God was all-powerful. He knew that God was sovereign. Did he know that there was an enemy, Satan? Yes. But as Martin Luther said, the devil is still God's devil. Uh, God has Satan on a leash. He's got him on a chain. And he can only go where he has permission to go. See, if you have a perspective that God is in control of every event and every circumstance that comes into your life, that makes a difference as to how you respond to what comes into your life. Um, I, was, I, I was noticing on my bookshelf the other day, again, Lisa Beamer's book about what happened to her husband, and here's a gal who's got, what, two little kids and, has, um, uh, and is pregnant with another child and the 9-11 deal, and you know the story, her husband's on that plane and, you know, let's roll, and they 
whatever happened on that plane. But there, we had enough information. He was talking to the operator. Um, and at first, you know, they were interviewing different family members. If you recall, you didn't see Lisa Beamer at first. I remember one, one gal that I saw in probably four or five programs over a 10-day stretch. And then somebody interviewed Lisa Beamer. And then somebody else interviewed her. And somebody else interviewed her. And then somebody else. Because there was something about her. There was a, uh, in the midst of an unspeakable tragedy, uh, there was a, uh, there was a calm, there was a poise, there was a dignity, there was a confidence. There was a quiet confidence. What made her stand out was that, quite frankly, her world had not fallen apart. Because, you see, her world was not her husband. Her world was her God. Now, interestingly enough, God prepared her for that by the circumstances that surrounded the death of her father when she was in high school. And she struggled for years and years and years because her dad, quite frankly, was taken to the wrong hospital that didn't have the equipment. And if he hadn't been taken to the other hospital, he would have lived. And she was devastated with it. She struggled with that deeply for years and years and years. And what brought resolution into her life? When she finally submitted to the fact that God knew that her dad was going to be taken to the wrong hospital. God knew the right equipment wasn't going to be there. God knew that the bureaucratic mix-up which led to those events where her father was in the wrong place at the wrong time, God knew all about that. God could have done something about it, and he chose not to. And when she bowed to that, and when she admitted submitted to his ways and to his thoughts. Everything changed for her. So what was her, what, what was the secret of Lisa Beamer? She's got a very big God. Her God is not human. Uh, her, her God is all wise. Her God is good. Her, her God is a God of grace and mercy. Even when he, t see with Job, Lisa Beamer would say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Still hurts. Still misses him. Still wishes he was around, just like you would. I talked with a man uh, a couple weeks ago on the phone who his family, his wife and four children, they were in their van driving from Kansas to, uh, I think Wichita, Kansas, to their home in Kansas City. They're going up I-35. There's this freak storm, hail storm. Uh, they're, they're crossing a bridge. The, the intensity of the rain, well, what happens? There's a flash flood. Um, and they're caught, and the water's rising. And they're trying to get out, and they can't get out. And he's got four little kids in that van, and his wife's sitting next to him, and he's doing everything he can do. And, and as he is trying to find a way... Um, well, what happened? A wall of water about eight feet high came and swept that van. And he was taken downstream about a mile and a half and found his way up on a bank. Uh, but his wife and four children were all drowned in that, uh, in that flood. 
But quite frankly, talking to him reminded me of hearing what Lisa Beamer had to say. Was he grieving? Yeah. Was he hurting? Oh, yeah. He's working with a Christian counselor. He sees him every week. But um, this guy had a grip on the sovereignty of God, and he had a grip on the bigness of God. See, guys, when life falls apart, what you believe about God is critical. You, you know, are you, are you guys still with me? Yeah. Are, are you? I don't have a lot of humor tonight. You, you know, motivational sales talk stories. I, I don't have stuff like that tonight. Um, what, what I've got for you is some pretty heavy stuff. Um, uh, what, what we've got here tonight is, is, some, is some meat and some prime rib. We're, we're not doing junk food tonight. We're not doing M&Ms. We're not doing Hershey bars with almonds. We're, we're doing stuff that's got some substance. We're doing the spinach and we're doing the Brussels sprouts. Uh, that most people don't like and they don't want to chew on, and if it gets in their mouth, they spit it out. But see, this is the stuff that will give you sustenance. This is the stuff that will build spiritual muscle. This is the stuff that will make a difference in your life um, a- a- as to what you believe. Still got your Bible? Turn with me to Psalm, six, uh, Psalm 14. What, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you and what I believe is the most important thing about me. Psalm 14 says this. It says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That pretty much describes uh, a great aspect of our culture. It describes what our uh, universities have become it describes what our educational system has become. Um, quite frankly, where we are in this nation, the, um, the educational system in this nation, it's very safe to say, is anti-God and anti-truth and anti-Bible. Now, it wasn't always that way. I was reading this past week about John Witherspoon. Uh, the great Scottish theologian and pastor who was invited to become president of uh, Princeton University because they were so concerned about training up men in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. Uh, Harvard was the first school that was to train men in the truth of the Scriptures. But it didn't take long for Harvard Harvard, to get away from the Word of God. So then another group of guys said, well, we're going to start a school that will really teach the Word of God and be true to the Word of God. And they started that school, and they named that Yale. So because of what happened at Harvard and Yale, some other men got together and said, we've got to start a school. And they did, and they called it Princeton. And they were so thankful that John Witherspoon came. And he had a phenomenal impact on those young men that he taught. Uh, In the continental, um, in in the uh, um, Philadelphia, to get together for the Declaration of Independence, there were 20, Continental Congress, that's what I was trying to say, thank you. There were 25 college graduates. Nine of them were graduates of Princeton who had sat under John Witherspoon. 
who, who had taught them the word of God. Um, things have radically changed uh, in our culture. There's a tremendous classic written in the 1600s called The Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. It's just light bedtime reading. <laughs> but his first chapter is simply on the existence of God. The fact that God is, and why God is, and why God is, is the most rational thing in the world that a person could think. To think otherwise is to be irrational. To think otherwise, quite frankly, is to be a fool. And he's got about two pages of small print on being a fool. Um, can I give you just a few highlights? I, I spent some time today just going through with a marker and just, you can't read too much of this at one sitting. You just can't do it. Uh, you you got to take it in, in, in small bites and you really got to chew. You, you, you can't, I mean, you, you got to really chew it up. You, you have to uh, be methodical because you can't assimilate all that is here. So some of this, as we look at this, is going to stretch you. Um, let, let's, let's take a few nuggets, all right? He's talking about those um, that deny that there is a God, and he talks about those who deny the providence of God. Not only that God created, but that God sustains the world. All right, here's what he says. Those that deny the providence of God do in effect deny the being of God, for they strip him of that wisdom and goodness, tenderness, mercy, justice, righteousness, which are the glory of the deity. They strip God of his attributes. Those attributes are there for us to live off of every day. Um, what's new every morning, the scripture says? What's new every morning? Mercy. Man, I can't live without mercy. You can't either. I'm not interested in justice. I want mercy. I need mercy. He goes on and he says, talking about the unreasonableness of atheism. He says, when men shut their eyes against the beams of so clear a sun, God revenges himself upon them for their impiety. By leaving them, catch this, by leaving them to their own wills, lets them fall into the deepest sink and dregs of iniquity, and since they doubt of him in their hearts, he suffers them above others to deny him in their works, just as Paul says. He goes on and talks about the fact that there is not a nation that has ever been on the face of the earth of which the people did not believe in God. You can't find a nation of atheists. There has never been a nation of atheists. In talking about that fact, and, and by the way, he says here that Atheists are more numerous in our times. And then later, he makes the statement that among men who are published and men who are respected in the academic world, there are less than 20 that are atheists. In, in, in all of Western civilization in, in the 1600s, 20. 
He goes on, he says, the apostles spent little time in urging this truth. What truth? That there is a God. They just preached it. They didn't try to prove it. They just declared it. Why? It was taken for granted all over the world that they were generally devout in the worship of those idols they thought to be gods. In, the, in that age, they would run from one god to many. Yet in our age, we're running from one god to no gods at all. Isn't that interesting? You study the Greeks, Greeks had gods. You study the Romans, the Romans had gods. See, the, the tendency is to go from one god to many gods. So what do we do in the modern era? We go from one god to no god. No god whatsoever. That's where we are. Um, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He says, there is no nation but hath owned some kind of religion and therefore no nation but hath consented in the notion of a supreme creator and governor. There have never been a people so untamed where the absolute perfect atheism has gained a footing. You know, I'm going to stop right there. There... But then he goes on and talks about, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to give you one paragraph. I knew I had to give you this one. But he's talking about atheists and how their numbers are spreading. Catch this. He says, what if some men be blind? Shall any conclude from thence that eyes are not natural to men? Shall we say that the notion of the existence of God is not natural to men because a very small number have been of a contrary opinion? Shall a man in a dungeon that never saw the sun deny that there is a sun because one or two blind men tell him there is none when thousands assure him that there is? Why should then the exceptions of a few, not one to millions, discredit that which is voted certainly true by the joint consent of the world? There is a God. Romans 1 tells us that the truth of God has been written on our hearts and secondly, we observe God through what he has made. There has to be a creator. There has to be someone behind what we see. Um, uh, Thomas Watson. Interestingly enough, uh, Stephen Charnock and Thomas Watson, it's one of my favorite writers, these guys ministered together in the same church. Man, I'll tell you what. I'd be there. I these, these guys knew God. The, the, these guys were studs. Um, Watson, in his book, A Body of Divinity, taught, he has a premise. And his premise is, it is the duty of Christians to be settled in the doctrine of faith. What he's talking about is the great doctrines of what we believe. And that would include the doctrines of who God is. He said is that it is the duty of Christians, catch this, to be settled. To be settled and who God is. He goes on, <clears throat> and he quotes 1 Peter 5, verse 10, which says, the God of all grace shall establish, strengthen, and settle you. And then he goes on and says this, that is, that they might not be meteors in the air, but fixed stars. The apostle Jude speaks of wandering stars. Now stay with me here, in verse 13. They are called wandering stars, because as Aristotle says, they do leap up and down and wander into several parts of the heaven. But being but dry exhalations, not made of that pure celestial matter as the fixed stars are, they often fall to the earth. You know what he's saying? He's saying there are two kinds of stars. 
there are uh, shooting stars, meteors, and there are fixed stars. Um, Thanksgiving in November, when we did our last Bible study, next morning, uh, we loaded up the suburban and we started heading to California. And we were out there for Thanksgiving and the holidays. We're driving across the New Mexico desert about 8.30 at night, middle of nowhere. Just driving, it's kind of boring, just normal. And all of a sudden, shooting. I mean, it came out of nowhere. This was no shooting star. This was a meteor. It came blazing across the horizon. It was so, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Everything lit up. It, it looked like it was no more than two or three miles from us, descending quickly to the earth. It, it lit up the entire sky. People hit brakes. It, it, it was magnificent. It was, uh, it was a flaming star. It was there. You saw it, and you're assimilating it, and there was a fireball, and it exploded, and it was gone. All I would say in less than 10 seconds. That was quite, a, that was quite an event. Um, <clears throat> last night I was down at the barn. When I came outside, it was real dark. And I looked up and I saw the moon. And then I looked over there and I saw Venus. And then I stopped and I'm just checking out. And the light, you know, it was dark. And I could see the Big Dipper. And I can see it a little different. Those are fixed stars. Two kinds of stars. Fixed stars. Shooting stars. Shooting stars make a real big impression. Uh, they create a lot of heat. They get a lot of attention. But then they're gone. That, that meteor we saw, and we'll never see it again. But you know, last week, I happened to look up and see Venus. And I saw the Big Dipper. And you know what? If it's clear, I'll see it tonight. And you know what? It'll be there next week, and it'll be there next week. What you believe about God, quite frankly, determines in your life if you'll be a shooting star or if you'll be a fixed star. You know the thing about a fixed star? A fixed star is always there. It's reliable. It's dependable. It's steady. If, uh, if you get lost in the wilderness and you can find your way to a clearing, uh, you can find your way because if you can see a fixed star, if you can find that north star, you can get your bearings and you can save your life. If you're, if you're uh, uh, stranded at sea, if you're out there all by yourself, if you can get a bearing on the fixed star, you can find your way out. What we believe about God determines how we live our lives as men. What I believe about God determines if I'm a fixed star or if I'm a, um, if I'm a shooting star. I mentioned this book uh, in November to you that I've been reading by Paul Johnson. Uh, it's called The Intellectuals. It's about the great intellectuals that our culture celebrates. Uh, Karl Marx, um, Henrik Ibsen, Tolstoy, uh, Ernest Hemingway, uh, Bertrand Russell. Uh, um, 
really fascinating to read the lives of these men. Because you know what these guys are? They're shooting stars. You know what every one of these intellectuals has in common? They say there is no God. And you know what these intellectuals are? They're fools. And in their own lives, because of what they believed, there was anarchy and chaos everywhere they went. There was every one of these guys. Rousseau. You read their personal stories. You read about their families. You read about their children. You read about what they believed and how it was lived out. People that got in their wake, people were destroyed and devastated and maimed. Uh, they were flashes across the horizon of history. But because they said there was no God, they were fools. He talks about Bertrand Russell in here. Bertrand Russell was born in the year that Ulysses S. Grant was inaugurated for the second time. He died right on the eve of Watergate. That's quite a stretch. He lived for 98 years. He was, his parents died by the time he was four. He was raised by his grandmother, who was a Bible-believing Christian. She didn't put him out there. Another, this kid, Bertrand Russell was a homeschooled Christian kid in a Bible-believing element. But by the time he was 15, he said there was no God. He reject, You know what he reminded me of when I read his story? He reminded me of so many of the Old Testament kings. He had a godly base. He had a godly heritage. But he rejected it. And he lived his life as a fool. Because what he believed about God, see, he was married three times, but he had so many affairs and liaisons with women, some of them as young as 14, they, they the guy spent five pages just talking about his affairs. Had two kids that he totally and completely, totally neglected. Completely. Lived his life, wretched excess. The world celebrates his life. Those that were near him, quite frankly, hated him. That was true of any of these intellectuals that you read. Because these men that the world celebrates, they're shooting stars. Because they said there is no God. What you believe about God, if you adhere to this book, for your, for your family and for your life, will make you a fixed star. What you believe about God will sustain you and make you steady and keep you strong in the midst of adversity and hardship and disappointment. You will become a rock to those around you. You will become an encouragement because you know what is true about the God that you serve. Uh, guys, tonight, this has just been an introduction. What I'm trying to do is, is, is put a taste in your mouth for why this is so palatable and why we're so needful of this study about God. It'll sustain us. It'll keep us alive. It'll make us better leaders. Uh, it'll help us to weather the storms that are coming. So I hope you can join us these next Wednesday nights as we uh, look at his immensity and his greatness. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you are so great and that you are so mighty and that you are so wonderful. There are times we question you. There are times we don't understand you. But I would pray for us, Lord, that you might um, enable us 
to get uh, to take off the robes of a judge and to get out of the courtroom if we've got you on trial. We don't judge you because we don't have all the facts. We don't indict you because we don't begin to know an ounce of what is true and what you are up to. So as we commence this study, would you give us teachable hearts? Would you, would you humble our minds and would you teach us things, Lord, that we have not comprehended before? Things that would make us stronger. We're not after knowledge just for knowledge's sake. We, we, we want to know you. We want to begin this process of finding out about your greatness and your majesty. We, we, we want to, Lord, um, we want to grow and we want to mature and, and we want to see aspects of you that we have not been able to uh, uh, decipher before. And we would like that to make a difference in our lives and we would like it to make us more steady and more confident and less fearful. That's what we would like to see happen. So would you do that for us, we pray. Would you encourage us and give us great hope as we find out about your greatness. We desperately need you. So we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.